It's great that you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you from Atlanta in December of 2020. Today, we're going to be talking about wild animal welfare. That's right, wild animal welfare. Normally, when we talk about quote unquote animal welfare, we mean cats and dogs or maybe farmed animals, basically the animals we've domesticated and that we must take care of. But as sentient beings, animals in the wild or free roaming animals like deer or fishes or raccoon or bees, um, they all have well being that can be considered and a desire to be healthy and avoid unnecessary suffering. A unique research group, Wild Animal Initiative, has formed to help investigate ways that humanity can help members of the wild animal kingdom to live better lives, just as we humans try to take care of ourselves and our domesticated animal friends too. Their executive director, Michelle, is here to explain and share some examples, but first let me tell you about her and her organization. The mission of Wild Animal Initiative is to understand and improve the lives of wild animals. They respect wild animals as individuals with their own needs and preferences rather than seeing them as mere parts of ecosystems. But this approach demands a richer understanding of wild animals' lives. Wild Animal Initiative currently focuses on helping scientists, grantors, and decision makers investigate important and understudied questions about wild animal welfare. The group's work catalyzes research and applied projects that will open the door to a clearer picture of wild animals' needs and how to enhance their well-being. Ultimately, Wild Animal Initiative envisions a world in which people actively choose to help wild animals and have the knowledge they need to do so responsibly. Their website is wildanimalinitiative.org. Joining us today is their executive director, Michelle Graham. Michelle studied physics and philosophy at the University of Oxford and is currently working towards a PhD in engineering mechanics at Virginia Tech. Michelle's research is on the movement behaviors of jumping and gliding snakes. In addition to this research, Michelle has worked with animals in shelter, veterinary, farm, and zoo environments. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, tell us how and why your unique group got started. Yeah, so I mean, I think people have been interested in the the welfare of wild animals for a long time, using lots of different perspectives from lots of different cultural traditions. And definitely the question of our responsibilities to wild animals has, has popped up in Western philosophy for, for hundreds of years. But only more recently has um, the community that, that our group kind of formed within, which is called the Effective Altruism Community, uh, started thinking of wild animals as a really interesting group to care about. Um, and, and for those who aren't familiar, the Effective Altruist Community is a community of people who are interested in, in what, what they think of as, as trying to do good as effectively as possible, as cost effectively as possible. And what that often means is they focus on uh, problems that are relatively neglected, uh, as in there aren't as many organizations working on them, problems that are sort of large in scale in terms of the number of individuals they affect, and, and problems that are tractable in the sense of, you know, it seems like there's, there's some opportunity to do something uh, effective for them. And I think wild animal welfare, given that it, it worries about all wild animals, obviously it seems pretty large in scale and there aren't that many organizations that exist that, that focus exclusively on improving the welfare of wild animals. Um, and for that reason, I think it, it got uh, the attention of the effective altruist community um, and, and it, Wild Animal Initiative was formed from within that community. 
And and how did you get involved with it? Were you one of the people that had the main idea? No, I was not a, a founding member. I actually uh, joined as a researcher first. Okay. And that was after a period of sort of critical self-reflection during my PhD, where I have always been an animal lover and I've been a vegan for several years. And I was doing this research on snakes that I had kind of justified to myself as being like really intellectually interesting and about animals, which I liked. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not doing anything invasive or harmful, so it's, it's fine. But realizing that it's really hard to study mm. animals without bothering them. Yeah, he, and, and And being worried about that and realizing that to know if what I was doing was ethical, I wanted to know about what the animals I was studying mm. life would have been like if I wasn't in it and whether I was sort of making counterfactually a positive or negative impact on their life and just realizing there wasn't any data about what these animals' life was like in the wild for me to compare. Um, and that's what got me interested in, in the movement. Right. There's a lot of baseline information that your organization is have is going to have to kind of lay down about what wild animals need and what they currently endure in order to know, okay, then what can we do about it? Kind of a exactly. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, in the case oh, of, uh, sorry, in the case of humans, you know, if you're interested in, in tackling a global health problem or, or, a, or some other aspect of, of human well-being, there's so much data, like, this is the primary cause of death of humans in this demographic right. group in this area, you know, and we don't have that for wild animals. So there's a lot to learn still. Um, and how do you and your fellow scholars respond to any pushback you might get from people who their immediate reaction is that, okay, intervening in the lives of wild animals is either sentimental or irresponsible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's definitely fair to worry about about how to do it responsibly. And I think that's why we, we kind of put the word responsibly right there on yeah. our front page as being what we're interested in. Because absolutely humans have done, well, everything that humans do, we're a part of nature, you know, the, yeah. the choices we make affect the, the ecosystems around us. And, and certainly many of those things have not been targeted to, to improve animal welfare. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, irresponsible, I, I think, you know, you, it's hard to point to evidence and say you can't do this because no one's really tried to do it, mm. um, to do it safely. Uh, and and then on the, on the area, the issue of it being sentimental, yeah, I, I guess I do feel sentimental feelings towards animals. But in the in the sense that it would say, you know, just as I wouldn't ignore a perfectly natural health crisis in right. humans, I don't want to ignore a natural health crisis in animals. And I and, and I think about why, you know, it's not like I only want to prevent prevent pandemics so that I don't get sick. I want to prevent pandemics because I don't want anyone to get sick because I think that would suck for them. Right. Um, I like the human example too, just because also maybe being a humanitarian is sentimental, but then let's be sentimental um, because yeah. it's just about expanding our moral sphere of concern. And I also like your point in a way like, okay, we have been interfering with wildlife and we've probably been doing it irresponsibly. <laughs> so let's try to intervene responsibly and see what happens. <laughs> and so yeah. that would be a new approach. Yeah, and well, I wonder if someone uh, who might say that that it's overly sentimental is worried that we're anthropomorphizing animals and, and assuming they have experiences that, that are bad when really they're fine. Um, and I think that, well, that's definitely an empirical question that's really open and needs to be researched itself. Which is why, yeah, there's all kinds of animal ethologists and people who study the animal cognitions. But I, I've always said in my work that I'd rather err on the side of caution or give them the benefit of the doubt that they do have feelings and emotions rather than assuming they don't 
you know, just in case they do, right? Sure. Um, and it kind of makes more sense to, that they would have some um, similar uh, feelings and um, or ability to feel and things like that. Definitely. What, what are your long-term hopes and goals for what Wild Animal Initiative can achieve? Let's say in a decade or so, like what would you like to have as some achievements? Yeah, so I think that the, the core components that we see as being necessary to do this work well are that there needs to be research to answer these questions about what's going on in nature, what can we do about it, how can we predict the effects of our actions so they're not having unintended consequences. But then there also needs to be a pipeline from that research to action on behalf of animals, because it's no good if the research is happening and no one's doing, you know, using those results. So I think, you know, right now at Wild Animal Initiative, we're focused on fostering that research community. And in 10 years, I would love it if there was an active, either like an institute dedicated to researching the welfare of wild animals, which is a really interdisciplinary subject I have found, um, which could be really intellectually, uh, you know, a great step as well as a morally important step to have to have an institute bringing biologists and ecologists from all these different fields together to answer these questions. Um, and maybe a conference or a journal where people can publish. And then also, um, relationships built with people who make decisions, either policies set by governments about how to manage land or recommendations we can make to the public that people are listening to about actions people can take in order to actually foster a, a higher welfare ecosystem for everyone. I like that. Well, Wild Animal Initiative has worked out a variety of research priorities to start with, um, and they put it on your agenda. I thought today we'd concentrate on research that involves quote unquote, wildlife management issues where humane methods can be introduced. Like um, in research on the urban rock pigeon, and I saw that on your website, where you're talking about how birth control could be used instead of having cities poison the pigeons to reduce their numbers. Can you speak a little bit about that as an example for people of, of an animal welfare initiative dealing with wild animals? Yeah, and I think I think one thing that's exciting for us is to, to choose a target animal, but not only consider the effects of on that animal, but consider the effects on all the animals in the surrounding ecosystem. And that can be really hard to do. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we like the rock pigeon as a case study, because, you know, here's a bird who is currently being killed in a lot of cities. Um, in order to reduce its sort of nuisance causing to humans. Um, they defecate on buildings and cause damage to structures that people don't like. And um, so people, you know, cities and, and other like managers of large buildings try to control their population sizes. And, and sometimes that's done by just trying to discourage them from being present. Um, but other times it's done either through some, some pretty nasty drugs that can cause them to have seizures and, and uh. is supposed to scare them away somehow, but often is misused and actually does kill them to um, actually lethal products. Um, and uh, so it seems like we could get a lot of the same goals that these managers have accomplished if we use a fertility control method to reduce population sizes without causing as much harm to the birds. But obviously we have some, some research questions, one of which is just what are the effects of this, of this drug, um, which, which does exist on the market, a drug for fertility control in pigeons, um, on the birds themselves. 
And then if you use fertility control and the age structure of that pigeon population changes, so there are fewer juveniles relative to the adults, is there a higher juvenile survivorship? Like do more of the babies that are, are born survive to adulthood and have better lives? And then are there any predators or other animals that live in the same ecosystem who might have effects from those changes? You know, if there are more, um, if there are fewer nestlings, for example, is there any predator that only eats pigeon nestlings who will then be starving. I think that actually that's not the case, but if it was, it would be the kind of thing we would, we would wanna consider right. very carefully, the entire system. Right, so many potential intervening variables and confounding kind of factors to, to consider. Um, how would the birds, how would you get the birth control um, into the birds, especially if you're talking about a lot of birds, is it in food versus having to um, inject uh, a bird with um, like a syringe needle or something that's very invasive? Yeah, in this case, it's a bait. So it's like sort of a corn-like product and you set up a bait station and it shoots out a bunch of dosed corn type stuff okay. uh, in the, and the birds eat it. Okay, that's, that seems like it would make more sense. Um, and then could birth control measures like this be implemented towards other animals where government agencies have declared them to be quote unquote overpopulated for their ecosystem? I mean, I think of deer as one of the main examples, especially where um, when we use that excuse, whether it's relevant or not about them being overpopulated as a reason to hunt them and sell hunting licenses for certain animals. Um, I know like the Humane Society of the United States and oh, like over the years, so many animal protection organizations have wondered like if they are trying to be anti-hunting, well, what can we do in cases where some animals really are maybe starving to death or something because they are, there's not enough natural predators or things like that. So are birth control measures currently being used on some animals like deer? Um, I am not aware of any US-based projects where they're actively being used. I think they're, they may exist. Um, right. I know that there's a product available and I know that it has been researched. So I'm aware of some, some different research projects where people have studied the use of a couple of different uh, products that exist on the market for fertility control for deer. And also I think, I think surgical sterilization has been tried um, in some countries as well. Um, so it's definitely an option. I think it's, it's expensive. So cities make money, uh, you know, selling permits um, and it, permits. For, for hunting permits, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then it's, ex and so, you know, it doesn't necessarily cost them that much to, to reduce populations that way. In urban areas like Philadelphia, where I live or in Washington, DC, they don't actually have, you know, the ability for a hunter to come, like a, a member of the public to come on and hunt the deer. It's actually like US uh, Fish and Wildlife personnel, I believe. Um, right in many cases. So th that seems one where um, it really could just be a fertility control method instead. And it, it doesn't seem obvious why hunting is necessary. Right. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature and I'm host Carrie Freeman interviewing Michelle Graham, the executive director of the research organization, Wild Animal Initiative. We're talking about their investigations into ways that wild animals could live healthier, higher quality lives and how we humans might facilitate that. Their website is wildanimalinitiative.org. Michelle, tell us how and why compassionate conservation principles can be incorporated into ecology and wildlife management. For example, I know your group recently um, 
published a scientific paper suggesting how restoration ecology can incorporate wild animal welfare. Like, tell us how that can be done in ways that benefit the wild animals and the entire ecosystem. Yeah, so I think a question that I realized I needed to ask myself when I was coming into this work, and, and, and you know, I thought of myself as someone who, uh, in the past, who really was an advocate for conservation, and I realized I thought of, of myself that way because I thought it was definitely the best thing for wild animals. Um, and it may well be, <laughs> but I think it, it hasn't been researched in terms of its effects on the welfare. Um, and, and it's often like considering the animals as individuals rather than just whether or not their population is stable seems to sometimes be left out of the, the conversation. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I think that that comes into play in, in two ways. One is just while we are pursuing conservation goals, it is often the case that we have to trade off the needs of some animals against others. Um, and in the case of say an island where an invasive species like a rat has come to be prevalent, often that might mean an eradication of, of millions of rats uh, in order to preserve an ecosystem in a particular way. And I think it's, it's really an important moral and philosophical conversation to have to say, what are you aiming for when you do a conservation project and what does success look like? Mm. And I think that something really powerful that the wild animal welfare perspective can bring is a animal focused perspective of saying, maybe the ecosystem we should be aiming for is the one with the highest welfare for all the individuals living in that ecosystem that we can achieve. And that's not to say there won't still be trade-offs. I mean, it's hard yeah. to imagine an ecosystem. It would have to be, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not gonna be all bliss for everybody 100% of the time. Yeah. Um, but, but trying to think about what it would mean to do that instead of say saying, oh, we're trying to aim for this ecosystem to look exactly like it was before the industrial revolution or something like that. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure you know, conservation ethicists definitely think about these things. I'm, I'm not trying to say it's not being thought of, but I think that sometimes the conversation can really focus on human centric values. Like I want it aesthetically, the ecosystem to look this way, or I want to preserve you know, a, a lot of different animals because that's what I consider special. Um, and I think right. it's really interesting to think about, well, if I focus on the welfare of the individuals who live in that ecosystem, would I come up with a different answer? And I think that's something that we, we really have to offer that conversation. Yeah, I like how the idea that you maybe we should change the idea of what success looks like. So it's not just the notion of um, the forest system or whatever ecosystem kind of looking the way we think it might have before colonization or whatever. Because I know just having traveled also to New Zealand, that's an example of a very large island that is a bird island and it's not really supposed to have mammals on it. But human mammals are there with their sheep and then, but then they, apparently that's fine, but they don't like any other mammals that are there, like possums and stuff, they want to eradicate them. So it's like, yeah, you have to make some choices. Like, can we live, can they live with some possums, you know, in a way that not all the birds die because of the possums, you know, it just, it is a difficult question, but I do think that in conservation, typically it's been, um, and they had any excuse to kill anybody who, um, you know, who interfered with the pursuit of what they considered the greater good. Now, not with humans necessarily. So, and that's where I, I often think that there's a disconnect, which your group is addressing that if we care about human rights and human rights is often based on us as sentient animals, then we should also care about the rights of 
fellow sentient animals of other species um, to not just be killed because they their lives are inconvenient to some other aspect of the ecosystem because that's not how we are supposed to treat human problems by just like eradicating everybody who is quote unquote a problem. So yeah. uh, even though I know there's all kinds of human rights abuses as well, but uh, yeah, it's just a different way of thinking about wild, wild animals instead of seeing them as just a kind of cog or a tool for this greater ecosystem. And so yeah, and it, what you're doing it, is very needed. Yeah, thank you. And I, you know, I think it might all be academic if it wasn't for the fact that we do have fertility control methods of various kinds, everything from surgical sterilization, which I can see, like obviously if you're trying to remove an entire population of rats from an island, you can't <laughs> surgically sterilize every rat. Um, but, but you know, we do have chemical methods that can be uh, distributed as bait. We have um, in some species, we're learning how to use like uh, immunocontraceptives. Um, and we have even, uh, genetic engineering uh, options available um, where in the case of the mosquito, there's a product on the market that can release sterile mosquitoes uh, who have been genetically modified to, to, to be uh, sterile and use that as a way of reducing populations. I think all of these things have their own ethical and moral conversations that need right. to be had around them. And I'm not endorsing any one thing right away, but I certainly, um, I think that it should be explored as an alternative to lethal methods of reducing population sizes. And I like on your website also, we don't have time to cover this, but you even had a section about um, insects killed in agriculture because it's such a high number. And that, so there's a concern also for insect welfare. So it's not just the charismatic animals like elephants and panda bears that your group is saying like, look, if, if it can be proven that you have some kind of sentience um, let's consider the things that we're doing as humans that are causing unnecessary suffering and can we mitigate that? So I, I thought that that was um, a really noble aspect of your, your organization. But um, I wanted to ask you just in wrapping up, I know you have a small staff of mostly scientists. What kind of help does your organization need and from whom? Yeah, so we are really excited about forming more connections with researchers in all different kinds of environments, uh, you know, academic scientists or people who are doing research at conservation organizations or other NGOs or anything like that. So um, we have an advisory panel that if you wanted to uh, contribute to the scientific conversation that we're having internally, uh, we you should um, uh, email us to, 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 to join and have a conversation about that. Or we also have a grant advising program where if you would like to secure funding for um, a research project that you think could help us understand how to improve the, the welfare of wild animals, um, we'll provide you with resources to help identify funding opportunities and with grant writing um, and other aspects of that process. Um, and for members of the public, we have uh, a website, which you've mentioned, www.wildanimalinitiative.org. We're also on Facebook at Wild Animal Initiative and Twitter, which is at Four Wild Animals. Um, and we have a podcast, which is on SoundCloud or on our website called Wildness, that is like a four episode introduction to, to what we're trying to accomplish here. Oh, that's great. The podcast is called Wildness. Um, and what was the handle that you said, Four Wild Animals? Is it F-O-R or, or the number four? F-O-R, for wild animals. Okay, was that on Instagram or I forget which one? Sorry, that's Twitter. Oh, it's Twitter, okay. 
Um, oh, that's great. And then what's an email that people could use to get in touch with you in case they wanted to be involved, as you mentioned, like either because they're trying to get a grant or because they want to share their research with you? Yeah, that's info, I-N-F-O, at wildanimalinitiative.org. Okay, info at wildanimalinitiative.org. Okay, that's great. Well, that's the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Michelle, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. We'll have to have you back to tell us more about what your research finds out and how it may start to change our policies and practices towards members of the wild animal kingdom. Definitely, I look forward to talking about it. Yeah, and good luck with your PhD. I, you, you may be Dr. Graham when we have you back. Oh, I very much hope so. <laughs> yes, she's almost done with her, her dissertation, okay. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com slash to nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>